Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's a unique challenge for an actor to play a villain in a movie or a TV show that isn't just compelling to watch, but also someone you sympathize with, maybe even relate to. On Ted Lasso, there is a character named Rebecca. Ted Lasso is, of course, a sitcom about an American football coach who finds himself in London coaching a soccer team. If you haven't seen the first season of the show, uh, we are going to have some spoilers right now. Anyway, Rebecca. Rebecca is the owner of Richmond FC, the soccer team. When the show begins, she has just inherited the team in a divorce settlement, and she's the one who came up with the idea of hiring Ted, played by Jason Sudeikis. If it seems like a bad idea, well, Rebecca would, at least at first, agree. Her goal in hiring Ted is to ruin the team, make it a joke in the British press. The team, she says, is the only thing her ex really loved. But as the show goes on, you learn more about Rebecca. You find out about the humiliation and heartbreak she endured during her marriage, and you see her change. She gives up on revenge. She stops working to sabotage the team, and she finds inspiration and joy through Ted and the rest of the squad. In the hands of most actors, the part could easily become a cliché, her transformation unearned and hard to believe. But Hannah Waddingham, who plays Rebecca, isn't most actors. She commands authority, but almost always with vulnerability, poking through. She balances pain, anger, and compassion so deftly that it's impossible to imagine anyone else playing the role. It earned her an Emmy Award last year and another nomination this year. Before we get into her interview, which was conducted by our friend Linda Holmes, let's hear a little bit from Ted Lasso's second season. After a tumultuous year that saw Richmond FC relegated to a lower league, the club's members and employees find themselves at a personal crossroads. What do they want from work, from family, from love? Hannah Waddingham, our guest, plays Rebecca Welton. When the season begins, Rebecca is dating. She's getting coffee with a boyfriend. But as we said, she's still figuring out what she wants. You know, my friend Flo once told me that intimacy was all about leaving yourself open to being attacked. Isn't that horrible? I've not heard that one. I mean, it does make you realize how scary it is allowing yourself to be intimate again. I mean, you really do have to be brave. And that's it right there, isn't it? I need to be brave enough to let someone wonderful love me without fear of being hurt and without fear of being safe. Sorry, are you breaking up with me? I'm so sorry. I, I actually didn't know I was going to no, do no, no, that. No, 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 it's all right. Coffee's on me. Yeah, fair enough. Cheers. Hannah Waddingham, <laughs> welcome to Bullseye. Awkward! <laughs> <laughs> now I have to ask you, am I pronouncing your name correctly as a British person would? I... Americans, we hit the like wadding ham. I'm assuming. Well, do you know what? I don't mind. The thing that I love about Americans, you always check in about how it's pronounced. And Waddingham is just great, or Waddingham 
is is more English, but Waddingham is just great as long as it's not blooming Waddington, which I get all the oh. time in this country, and people then wonder why I get stroppy about it, and I'm like, it's not my name, man. Well, there's nothing wrong with having your your thoughts invaded by a, a small stuffed bear, but yes, it's not it's not Waddington. <laughs> I'm delighted that we can do this. You know, I, I have to assume that, as we've been talking about, that you're doing uh, more American press around Ted Lasso than you probably have in a while. <laughs> yes, I am. But I love it because everyone that we've spoken to, all of us, everyone's loving it. And so, you know, what's not to enjoy for us to have something that you all care about so deeply being so embraced and loved universally is, I mean, I can think of definitely think of worse jobs to have. For sure, for sure. It's, you know, it, I think the first season of Ted Lasso, which was so well-received, was also so, it was so well-timed in the sense that I know that I was and a lot of people were, you know, obviously stuck inside and mm. not really able to go out and do things. Having something that is so warm and positive show up, it was the right time, I think, for the right kind of show. I think it was in two ways, really. Sometimes I feel like it does the show and its message and vibe a disservice by talking about it in terms of the the pandemic. I do think that because the writing is so exquisitely drawn, I I do think that it probably would have had this effect on everyone anyway, because I feel like there was a need for it in society. People being kind to each other just because you should treat people as you would wish to be treated. Yeah, and I I think that's absolutely right. And it's interesting because I loved the first season. I enjoyed it so much. But I am, you know, I'm on the team that says I think the second season is a real leap in terms of the amount that the, that the different characters have been able to develop and and grow. And, you know, as welcome as as that first season would have been at any time, I think the second one is so, so impressive. Is Is that... Is that your sense? Do you feel like there's a, a big uh, jump in the second season in terms of letting more people breathe a little bit? Well, more importantly than anything, I'm just thrilled that that you think so. And I hope that most people do, you know. Yes, I would agree. I would say that the show is immediately jumping into greater depths, higher heights, greater lows, for everyone and for the writer's room, who are an absolute bunch of ninjas, I think that they have fed absolutely every character and fleshed it out to the absolute perimeters. And that's not necessarily always the case with shows, I don't think. Yeah. How much did you read when you first read the role of Rebecca and kind of to decide whether you were interested in it? How much of it did you read? Because in the first you know, in the first couple of episodes, she she could have really been a, a sort of a type, and she mm. obviously isn't, but she could have been. Mm. How much did they give you? You would be really shocked to know that when I went in for the first meeting, obviously it was only a few scenes or sides, as we call them. And then when I was flown out to um, L.A. for a chemistry read with Jason to the Warner Brothers lot, I'd been given like a what I can only describe as a travel brochure amount of of scenes to look at. <laughs> yeah. But still it was only from the pilot. I had no idea of the trajectory through it, you know, in terms of Rupert, in terms of how much, you know, a tiny little shortbread biscuit would mean to her, about her and Sassy, about her and Keely. I had no idea at all. And I certainly had no idea about the outcome of episode nine, where 
she's on her knees um, with the with what Rupert tells her. Um, I had decided that for myself that if they allowed me to play it at the age I am now, I wanted to make it that she had wanted to have children and had had that opportunity taken away from her by her husband saying, no, no, we're not, it's not right at the moment. We're busy at the moment when she was in her 30s. So to then see that come to fruition that I had no idea about, I found quite odd that that I'd already decided that for myself when I went into the audition. Because I was, I just had hardly, hardly any idea at all past the basic kind of mm-hmm. first episode of this is a wronged, usurped woman who is trying to make somebody atone for their behavior in the worst way possible. Well, and it's interesting because she's so, she is so different now from, you know, the way she would have looked at that time. And one of the things I appreciate about Rebecca is there is that scene where it's clear that it really hurts her that she did not have children, especially she didn't have them under sort of false pretenses mm. from from Rupert, but that also she has this lovely, um, she doesn't obsess over the fact that she doesn't have children and she no. is perfectly able to adore and love individual children as she does Nora in that really, really lovely episode that they just, um, that they just had. Mm-hmm. She... No, she doesn't have her own kids, but she loves she loves kids, especially the right kid. I do think she. I like the fact that uh, there is a, and I I tried to play it up as much as possible. A nervousness about, you know, when Sassy first says, "Oh yeah, no, she's with her for the whole weekend," and I wanted to put across that Rebecca's like, "Oh Jesus, the whole weekend, what am I going to do?" Because not because she doesn't want to be around a child, but because she feels her own failings and her own inadequacies in that moment. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think a lot of people who primarily get their entertainment through, uh, you know, television, particularly television in the U.S., you know, might think of you as somebody who's like, oh, all of a sudden I see her everywhere. But you you, you have been working and very successfully working for a long time in theater. Is it, is it strange to, to have that sort of um, overnight success? label attach. Yeah, it just makes me laugh because as you say, you know, I've been a leading lady in the West End and on Broadway since I was 22. <laughs> yeah. So the whole overnight success thing, I do find funny, but I have to say this kind of attention from such a fabulous show, I'm not entirely sure I would have been ready for it before now. You know, I obviously very much know who I am in my mid 40s. I know who I am as a person. I know who I am as a performer. I know what my values are and and what I hold nearest and dearest to me. So I think, you know, I'm a big fatalist. I think the universe delivers you that which it's meant to at the time it's meant to. So I don't mind being called a newcomer. (laughs) (laughs) What kinds of of skills do you think you have now in terms of deciding, like you said, who you are and what you want to do? What do you think has changed about your approach to work that makes it the right time to find a project like this? A hundred percent being a mother and being a single mother. It has to be a damn good piece of whatever, theater, film, TV, whatever, to take me away from my girl. And if it's not, I'm afraid she always comes first, but the work, I'm I'm happy to be a very tight, close second if the work is outstanding and, and this one really is. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You You talked about doing West End and Broadway and you know, you haven't just done musical theater, you've done 
some of the what I think of as the really hard kinds of musical theater. You've done a bunch of Sondheim. Sondheim is hard. <laughs> it is, but it's the most rewarding by a country mile. I have to say, as a as a singer who comes from an opera background with my my mother, I love the intricacies of crazy amounts of harmony. If you look at a little night music, Sondheim's a little night music that I did the leaders lever who are the main core of singers they'll be in five part harmony and then my character drops into it as well and if you look at into the woods the intricacies of that and the brothers grimm's storytelling there how do you say to a child in the night nothing's all black but then nothing's all white how can you say it will all be all right when you know that it might be true what do you What do you leave to your child when you're dead? Only whatever you put in its head. Things that your father and mother had said, which were left to them too. Careful what you say. I love detail. I think if I was doing a long-running show where there wasn't detail and something to challenge me, I would get very bored very quickly. I like keeping my creative juices flowing, and it's why I've never taken over from anyone in a role. I've rather waited and created something with the writers or producers. Yeah. You know, I, I wanted to... Um, I was reading a little bit about some of your theatre work, and when I, I found a... Um, a review of uh, Kiss Me Kate, which you did. Oh, God, no, don't um, tell me. Oh, God, I hate it. Re- do you know I've never read a review in my life? Well, it's 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 not it's not the review part. I promise it's just fun. Okay. Um, it says, a beautiful blonde diva with the lungs of an operatic beauty and the pout of a monumental minx. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, that's so funny. But you see, the people always wonder why I don't read reviews and it's because as much as everybody wants to be you know having their their performances affirmed you could read a hundred great reviews and it'll take one review where people don't think that much of you and that's all you then take into and if you're working in live theater I don't want to take that into my next performance the you know someone going oh they didn't like this part of the song or they didn't like it when I glance over stage right or whatever so I've always thought it was just safer to stay away from it all well, and even the positive ones, you know, even somebody who clearly thinks they're writing from a position of admiration, you know, it can get in your head in terms of their characterization of who yeah. you are and what your work is. Yeah, I think that you, if you let all of that in, it's the same with, you know, people keep laughing that I don't watch myself in the shows I do, but there's a very specific reason for it. Like, for example, I don't want to watch particularly the scenes in in Rebecca's office because I like viewing the world from behind her desk. I don't want to see it from the other way around. I don't want to see it from the audience's point of view because then I don't feel like I'm sitting in the middle of that character. We have so much more to get into. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, our guest is Hannah Waddingham. She's a veteran theater actor who's been getting a lot of acclaim for her TV work lately. On Game of Thrones, she played Septa Unella, a character who's probably best known for a scene we only need play a little bit of for it to, uh, for it to ring a bell. Shame. Shame. 
shame. Waddingham also plays Rebecca Welton on the TV show Ted Lasso. That role earned her an Emmy in 2021 when this interview first aired. News just broke that she's up for another Emmy this year. She's being interviewed by Linda Holmes, the co-host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. Let's get back into it. I want to play a, a clip here. This is from season one. It is where Rebecca comes to Ted's office and she kind of confesses that she's been kind of sabotaging him. It's it's a it's a scene that gets that gets pretty heavy. I want to listen to a little bit of it. This club is all that Rupert has ever cared about, and I wanted to destroy it. To cause him as much pain and suffering as he has caused me. And I didn't care who I used or who I hurt. All you good people just trying to make a difference. Ted, I'm so sorry. If you want to quit or call the press, I'll completely understand. I forgive you. You know, what I like about that and why I wanted to play that clip is that I think this role of Rebecca is so funny so much of the time, but then also so heartbreaking. And I wonder whether the breadth of stuff that you've done in theater sets you up perhaps the the best for the range of things you're called upon to do in this role. Undoubtedly. I think a combination of the the amount I've been stretched with characters in the theatre, the calibre of directors I've worked in, I'm thinking particularly about Sir Trevor Nunn, and then, you know, the age I am now and weathering the storm and then, you know, the, the peaks and troughs of one's own life, and I'm always very vocal because I think it's important for audiences and listeners to know that I I have lived an abusive relationship, verbally abusive relationship, and I don't hold back from sharing that which I've experienced and hopefully come out the other side of. And, and the fact that I can use this show as a catharsis for that and whatever I've picked up along the way from my own life and from theatre, then this is what I mean about feeling like this show came along at the right time in my life in every way for me to lend what I needed to, to Rebecca, to make her completely three-dimensional. Mm-hmm. Before you did Ted Lasso, were you a football person? Were you a football watcher? Hell no. <laughs> Do you know what? If we knew each other any better, you wouldn't have even asked that question. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's just um, perhaps it's just that it's uh, you have a, such a persuasive love of football on my television. <laughs> do you know what? I do think, though, that with Rebecca, certainly for season one, the whole fact that it's around football and that she's gone after this, she's gone after that football team because she knows, as she says in season one, she says in episode one, I've gone for the only thing that Rupert ever really cared about. 
And just as he ripped her heart out and smashed it on the floor, she's ripping his heart out and trying to smash it on the floor. And that is the football club. So it could have been anything. It could have been a troop of darts players or a kid's netball team. It's that which the person has loved, this other person has loved, and she's trying to use it as a tool for retribution. So season one, I didn't need to know anything about it. Season two... I, I have kind of upped my interest and love of it all, especially the kind of backstage vibe of the players. I've definitely upped that because now as we join her in season two, she is absolutely the owner of that team because she wants to be. She loves those boys. She loves those players and woe betide anyone, as you've seen in episode three, woe betide anyone that tries to coming between her and her boys. She is the figurehead of that team and really wants to be there. Absolutely. You know, this is clearly a role that brings you a lot of personal satisfaction. Have mm. you have you always felt like the access to the kinds of roles that you wanted was there? Because I've heard God, no. you say a few things in interviews where it sounds like you haven't always felt like things, like all the doors were open that you wanted to be open. No, the, the television door, certainly in this country, um, was, I feel, as kind of was let open always at just a little crack and that I always felt like the also ran. And it wasn't until... Why do, you think, why do you think that is? God knows. I'd love to know myself. I have no idea. But you know what? I don't care about that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> because people like... The, the people that really swung the door open wide and accepted me in, in a role that I perhaps would not have been considered for. Well, I know I wouldn't have been considered for because when I went for the meeting, I actually rang my agents and said, I genuinely think I'm in the wrong place. Everyone that's here is five foot tall and 70 years old, was Game of Thrones. And David mm, Benioff mm-hmm. and Dan Weiss um, decided that I should be Septrianella. And in that moment, they decided that I was allowed in. And so other people did. And it's as simple as that. And I'm hugely grateful to them. I've even heard you say on a couple of occasions that it it has been, for some people, a problem that you were tall. Oh, God, that's always been a problem. But I mean, who knows what it is? I, God knows. Maybe the, maybe the men are just too short. Well, I know. Tell me about it. That's been a thing all my life. But um, I feel like I'm kind of flying the flag for tall women, for women of a certain age, and for people from musical theatre who've been banging on the door of screen work as long as I was. Yeah, you know, I I, uh, I wanted to ask you too, and uh, watch your feet because I'm about to drop a name, but I, <laughs> I heard one time Sir Patrick Stewart say that he felt that in the UK, the lines between the sort of highbrow and lowbrow, whether you're doing movies or TV or theatre, were not as pronounced as they are in Hollywood. And this came up, obviously, because he had been, you know, a stage actor and also Picard on Star Trek and all that stuff. Do you think that's accurate, that they're not as as high, that those barriers aren't as high in the UK as they are in Hollywood? Uh, what, what do you mean? The barriers aren't as high? I would, I would certainly say, because bear in mind, um, Sir Patrick is coming from largely a straight, um, right. you know, straight theatre, like plays. Whereas I would say the West End musical theatre, it is better now. I would say in the last three to five years, casting directors and producers are looking to musical theatre actors 
you know, to give them the chance to to jump mediums and be able to do both. But gosh, in the last 20 years, I was bashing that door down. I mean, literally bashing the door in and and I know and I'm the one that's made it through. And I feel there are so many other people who were bashing it down, bashing it down and would be ignored. And I absolutely don't mind standing on my soapbox about it because I just think it's wrong. There have been brilliant people in musical theatre always that have been overlooked. Not now, and I must stress that. But yes, for a good many years, a massive, massive difference between musical theatre and not even being seen for things on screen because you're considered too big. And you just think, well, do you know what? How about just telling the person to bring it down, make it smaller? Is that what it is? It's that you're, it's the, the perception is that it's going to be too big of a performance. I think so. I think so, that your faces are too active. And you think, well, you know what? I'm sure we're quite malleable. Because if people sure. are singers, actors, and dancers, they're already quite talented people. I'm sure they could handle you whispering in their ear, can you think it, rather than showing it. <laughs> Yeah. You know, you mentioned um, earlier, you you mentioned your mom, uh, who is an opera singer. Yes, she is. Well, retired, but yes. Is a a retired opera singer. Yeah. Was there ever a plan for you in your own mind other than theater, other than performing? Oh, gosh, no. What, of of not singing, acting or dancing? No, no, no. In fact, more to the point, I remember when I was little, when I was about three, I remember, distinctly remember being told that people sit in offices behind desks. And I remember thinking, they do what? They go and they do what? They sit, but they go to the same, what? They go and sit behind the same desk and do what? <laughs> and nobody, nobody watches them. No, I was like, oh. And I think because, you know, my mum was a principal at Covent Garden before I was born. And then she stopped for 11 years to bring up my brother and myself. And then she went back into the chorus at the English National Opera at the London Coliseum. So I used to sit as a little eight-year-old Obviously, realising now that it's because of a lack of childcare, I used to sit in the um, auditorium watching every rehearsal, every show of every opera, thinking that that was normal. And I realise now, well, I realised many years ago, of course, how, what a huge privilege that was. Yeah. Was there anything about her experience that made you hesitate about performing or or being a theater person no it didn't make I didn't question it for a second I know I never have it it was just a it feels like a vocation for me Mm -hmm. as it as it was for her both her parents were opera singers as well so I feel like the you know when I first started doing musicals my mum used to say because of course she's very up here and you know She um, she used to say, oh, doesn't that hurt your voice? Because, of course, you belt more in musical right. theatre. And she was just like, is that not hurting your voice? I was like, no, mother. And I think I went out of my way to perhaps not go with what my natural voice is, which is a mezzo-soprano opera singer. <laughs> and I've realised since last year, just before we all had to lock down from this horrible plague that's beset us, I was doing a show at... Her theatre, the London Coliseum, which was rather amazingly coming full circle on our lives. I was playing Queen Elizabeth I in Bubil and Schoenberg's um, The Pirate Queen and doing full-on high operatic soprano trilling. And I did think to myself, oh, damn it, I'm so annoyed that my mum's right that this was what I should have been doing in the first place. (laughs) (laughs) So annoying. 
Uh, yeah, you know, it's um, it's interesting. I assume that Rebecca sings because you sing. Is that correct? No. Well, yes, Rebecca sings because I sing because Jason and the producers and writers were like, well, why? I mean, I even said to Jason when they said that there was going to be a karaoke scene and Rebecca sings, I said, why? And he said, why not? And I went, well, because yeah. she's a football club owner. And he went, mm, yeah, but she could really like karaoke singing. And I went, you're just putting this in because I'm a singer. And he was like, 100%. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I also like the fact that when Rebecca, because you meet Rebecca through, you know, she was married to Rupert. She's now the owner of this of this football club. But she would have had some other dreams and aspirations yeah. for herself. Yeah, well, that's what he said. Because she's said. such an interesting person. Yeah. So it makes sense to me that she would have something that she loves doing, and it makes sense that it might be singing. Well, the way that I settled it uh, in my brain and inspired myself to find that was I was very keen to not just have her being this perfect singer who's a professional singer. I wanted her to be somebody who, when she finally does let her hair down brilliantly in that Make Rebecca Great Again episode, it comes at a time when she is letting her hair down with her football team for the first time. She's letting her hair down with Sassy, who is a glimpse into her previous life. Like Sassy says, oh, you don't know Rebecca. Rebecca is silly and funny and loves karaoke and is a light-hearted spirit, but Rupert has squashed her. So you get that, yeah. and you also get the juxtaposition, the brilliant juxtaposition of Jason's character, Ted, having his first anxiety attack that we see on screen. So what an absolutely brilliant episode that you see all those things train crashing together at the same time. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, it would be so easy for the first episode where people really hear you sing to come off um, you know, somewhat, uh, you know, like a, like a stunt, like a... Yeah. Well, that's what I was so worried about. Yeah. Here's, here is somebody who we have who is a brilliant singer. So, of course, we'll just put the character in a karaoke bar. But I mm-hmm. think because of what you're talking about, especially the, the juxtaposition with the, with the panic attack, it, it makes perfect sense. And it, it has a reason to be there because you see the, 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 you know, the crossing up of her sort of feeling very free and open, which in mm. some ways makes it possible for her to go mm. and be helpful and supportive to to Ted when he's yeah. outside freaking out. Yeah. Well, not only that, but, you know, she's she is singing it to Nora because that's the song that they would sing together in the years before she nigh on deserted her because she was so far lost in the world of Rupert. But I also said to Jason at the time, if I am going to sing, can we at least not outstay our welcome? I don't want it to suddenly be, oh, look, Rebecca's singing. Can it be like a right. verse and a bit of the chorus and out? And he said, no, 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 we'll we'll totally be on Ted by then. And he went, I have yeah. to just say, though, I can't believe you must be the only performer I've ever met who wants to hide their light under a bushel. And I said, no, I, I don't care whether we're serving me or not. I am absolutely passionate about Rebecca And I don't want it to muddy the waters. And of course it didn't. And of course they were totally ahead of me. And it was only ever going to be how much it is anyway. Right. And it makes sense to me, given what you have been saying about wanting to make sure that people understood that you were a musical theater performer, but also, you know, an actor who could do a variety of other things, that you wouldn't want too much musical theater too early in a performance like this that was really different and special. You don't want it to seem like it's kind of propping up Rebecca with musical theater, if that makes sense. Well, that and also, 
you know, had they said that Rebecca was an absolute genius snooker player or brilliant at potholing, then I just want to embrace whatever it is, but I need a damn good reason why she's doing anything. Right. Yeah. For people who kind of don't know, we're jumping around a little bit, but, you know, we talked about um, growing up around the, the theater and growing up around your mom and her work. What was your first sort of work in theater? Ooh, mine was a thing called Saucy Jack and the Space... Well, the very first thing, actually, was a thing called Joey and Gina's Wedding, which had previously been in Chicago as Tony and Tina's Wedding. And it was sure. a, a comedy wedding thing, but it was interactive, so the audience were the guests of the wedding. I was just going to say, that's the interactive one, right? Yep. Yeah. So I was in that, and that's a brilliant place to cut your teeth because you have to think on your feet. So I would be improvising every night, pretending that I was this kind of over-the-top Chicagoan dolly bird um, who was married to a mobster. And it was brilliant trying to convince people in the audience that they were... they. Some people had brought their friends along and told them they were actually at a wedding reception. And to convince people, you're like, you know, why, why didn't you bring a gift? And they're like, oh, we thought this was a theatre show. You're like, no, no, oh dear. And I'd go off and get them something to go and give to the bride or, you know, and it, just, it was just uh-huh. a brilliant immersive theatre. So there was that. And then the main, the first main thing I did in terms of a Prozarch theatre production was Saucy Jack and the Space Vixens at the Queen's Theatre on Shaftesbury Avenue, which was a very similar thing to kind of uh, Return to the Forbidden Planet, um, Rocky Horror Picture Show kind of vibe, quite culty. And that's kind of where I cut my teeth in terms of being a, known for being a kind of belter on on stage. Mm-hmm. That's and what is that? So Rocky Horror Picture Show and ish. And who who were you? I in this it's Saucy Jack and the Space Vixens it was called, and I played a this. I can't believe I'm even talking about it. This is like twenty 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 three years ago. <laughs> I played this uh, character called Chesty Prospects. So it was all tongue-in-cheek and very silly. Um, <laughs> like the, the leader of the Space Vixens was called Jubilee Climax. And, uh, sure. and it was just really a kind of very tongue-in-cheek, silly show. But the music was absolutely just cracking. Really fantastic. So you were a Space Vixen? No, I wasn't Space Vixen. I was the naughty, oh, you fetish, a space I was a naughty fetish plastic smuggler. And it was brilliant because oh, sure. my parents ended up coming to see it. And I just thought, oh, my God, this is so embarrassing. But they loved it because it was very tongue-in-cheek and, and very kind of silly, but with really banging tunes. So I did that for, like, the first year of my theatre career. And then after that, moved on to um, Smokey Joe's Cafe, which I believe has been in the States as well. I was the shimmy girl in yes. Smokey Joe's Cafe. Nearly gave myself a hernia doing the shimmy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and uh, many years later, I, I I think if people Google you, one of the things that they will come across is the story of the mouse in your dress. Yeah, well, that's come up again recently because somebody said to me, have you ever had any nightmare situations on stage? I mean, I don't think you can get much worse than a live mouse in your costume stuck between the lining and the outer part of the dress, panicking that it can't get out. And I thought it was a muscle spasming. And then I stretched my... This is when I was doing Spamalot in the West End. I stretched my arm out to walk across to Tim Curry and, and reach out the Holy Grail to him, as you do. And the spasming, I thought, stopped when actually, Ooh. to cut a long story short, it was a live mouse in my costume for one um, performance and dead for two before we realized what it was. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I think anybody who's ever had mice anywhere understands that they would not want them in oh, anything that they are wearing. Absolutely horrific. And it's amazing yeah. that my brain in that moment when you're coming up through the floor hold, holding the Holy Grail, as you do, that this feeling you feel it like just in front of your armpit, you don't immediately think it's a live mouse. You think it's your muscle spasm. <laughs> Thank God I didn't think it was a live mouse. I would have had a panic attack on stage. Why would your brain think to itself? Thank uh, God maybe it didn't. there's a live animal in there. <laughs> you know, it doesn't uh. seem like it would. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's interesting because theater to me, theater stories are always the best show business stories in my in my biased opinion because be, because you do do it every night and and because it's it's different every time. Well, it's that old thing, isn't it? The smell of the grease paint, the roar of the crowd. There's nothing like yeah. it. The visceral response of, you know, in the front row and your sweat goes flying off on the front row's face and they love it. <laughs> we'll wrap up with Hannah Waddingham in just a minute. After the break, what it's like performing in an award-winning musical when a mouse, a live mouse, is stuck in your dress. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hi, it's me, Dave Hill, from before, here to tell you about my brand new show on Maximum Fun, the Dave Hill Good Time Hour, which combines my old Maximum Fun show, Dave Hill's podcasting incident, with my old radio show, The Damn Dave Hill Show, into one new futuristic program from the future. If you like delightful conversation with incredible guests, technical difficulties, and actual phone calls from real-life listeners, you've just hit a street called easy. I'm also joined by my incredible co-host, the boy criminal Chris Gersbeck. Say hi, Chris. Hey, Dave. It's really great That's to... That's enough, Chris. And New Jersey chicken rancher, Des. Say hi, Des. Hey, Dave. The Dave Hill Good Time Hour. Brand new episodes every Friday on Maximum Fun. Plus, the show's not even an hour. It's 90 minutes. Take that, stupid rules. We nailed it. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're talking with Hannah Waddingham. She's an award-winning theater actor and star of the TV comedy, Ted Lasso. She's being interviewed by Linda Holmes. I've talked to a bunch of people over the last year or so who have a lot of experience in theater. And to a person, they have such concern over the future for theater, um, not just because of the the long shutdowns that it's been dealing with recently, but sort of that being a blow to um, what is you know, a, a very healthy industry in some places. I think Broadway is pretty healthy, but, you know, certainly smaller theaters, um, s- smaller uh, opera companies, you mm-hmm. know, it's a it's a tough time for that. I assume that you have spent a lot of time talking to people you know from theater over the past year or so. Yeah, I have. And I am acutely aware of how privileged I am to have essentially jumped ship when I did, because my dad always talks about this as well. He always says how lucky it was that, Ted Lasso fell into my life because my peers from musical theatre, I've been so impressed by their response and their survival during this 18-month period. I mean, let's not forget that these are all people that were in jobs in the West End or regionally, and suddenly the pandemic comes along and they not only lose their jobs, but there's no furlough in theatre. And I don't think people talk about that enough. I'm appalled that People have been so universally had the rug pulled out from underneath them and they've just had to get on with it. Now, if you look at people who might be um, married or with with somebody else or with children, that's two incomes just gone. Mm-hmm. 
And the fact that I've heard that some people have had to re-audition for their own part that they left previously. Oh, boy. I just think that's, uh, there's, where is the respect there? For sure. What do you think the American or the, the, the UK appreciation for arts, like, what do you think it needs? What do you think the arts needs from us that they're not getting? Money. Money. Yeah. Money, money, and a bit more money. The West End and our <laughs> regional theatre were doing great guns, going great guns, before the pandemic happened. And it just feels like, I mean, it's other than Broadway, you know, on a par with Broadway, the West End in particular is the most revered theatre in the world. But that means that the people that are in that line of work should be revered as well. And all these regional, like you were talking about, all the smaller theatre companies that have been closed down regionally, and I'm sure it's the same in America as well, give them the money to to survive this moment and get them back on the map because they deserve it, because they are the absolute hardcore workforce at the coalface. And the first thing people will want to do after this pandemic is go and see live theatre or live shows, festivals, whatever. You have to feed that industry otherwise it will die yeah it's definitely it's very high on my list of things i want to do when i go back to you know going to new york and things yeah. like that because i was in a pretty good groove of of seeing a, a relatively regular supply of of plays and musicals and haven't been obviously in in a year and a half at least and and i think it's high on a lot of people's high on a lot of people's lists and it's been hard i i as you say, same same thing here. It's been difficult to get that support, I think, lined up and, and people have tried and advocated, but it's it's definitely, it's a huge challenge. Well, also the amount of, I don't know whether it's the same in America, I presume it is, the amount of Western performers who have fallen through the cracks in terms of being given any financial help. Yeah. You know, so they've had to go off and be delivery drivers or find some other form of income well, I just think it's shameful. I really do. And and thank you for asking, because whether people like me or, or not commenting about it, if I don't use this platform that I have been afforded the luxury of having for good and raising the subject that I don't think enough people know that people in theatre were not furloughed, I don't see why, I don't see how that was allowed to happen. Because everybody needs, there is a reason why it's one of the oldest industries in the world. And it's because there is an absolute basic human need for entertainment and distraction. Well said. Absolutely agree. Could not agree more. It's funny, I uh, as I'm thinking about what else I want to ask you before, uh, before I let you go, I looked at the uh, tabs at the top of my computer and I realized that earlier today I was watching one of the Stephen Sondheim have you ever watched the master classes oh no I haven't so there are these they're they're old they're from I don't know exactly from uh, when they are but they're from maybe the maybe the 80s maybe the 80s ish and he's instructing students on oh, I didn't yes I have seen that. I didn't realize that's what it's called yes yes I have seen those like a one-on-one thing but with an audience there uh, yeah. And I thought I, I, I was thinking of them because every time that I look at, you know, something about sending the clowns or something like that, I always look up that masterclass because I always think that has got to be the most terrifying thing in the entire world to have him sit there and watch you. Well, funnily enough, you know, it was lovely for me um, when I did little night music for him. Obviously, you've just said how scary it is to have him in your midst. 
But I was so glad that when I was, because of course I I had to sing Send in the Clowns every night and I was nervous that it's always been played by an older woman. So I was thinking, oh God, is he going to go for this? And he came up to me after our dress rehearsal and said, I'm sorry that I was contributing my own percussion. You had me in tears and I couldn't hide it. Oh, amazing. All you need is that for the rest of your I life, know, right? I know. But then again, when I did Into the Woods at Regent's Park, he sidled up to me. And I think because he and I then had a shorthand from a little night music, he came up to me, didn't even look at me, stood shoulder to shoulder to me and went, where's Cinderella? And I went, um, <laughs> she's over there. <laughs> and he went over to her and said, my dear, it is wood, not woods. Oh. And just walked off. And I thought, oh, crikey, that's got to hurt. <laughs> You know, the other thing about Ted Lasso that's interesting is that it does have a, a, a largely English cast, but it is you know, kind of in the the world of American television, at least the way that it's described. Do you think for British people, is it an American show or is it a is it a British show that American people just think is theirs? No, I would say it's 100 percent an American show in British people's eyes, because, of course, it's Apple TV and Warner Brothers. And um, judging from the response, I mean, don't get me wrong, we have a great response here, but it is definitely less than we did when we touched down about three weeks ago in LA and then went to New York. And all us main cast were like, whoa, right. Big old billboards (laughs) and your face like 20 stories tall on the side of a building. We were like, this is not like England. We're not in Kansas anymore. (laughs) (laughs) But I I am, they are definitely, Apple are definitely aware of that and are are pushing it brilliantly here at the moment. There have just been some brilliant bits and pieces that they've done here, which have definitely started the conversation more. Yeah, American television. Americans are are odd in the sense that it is really television that will put you in that space where y- you can't go to a bar in peace. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. Well, of course, it was funny because when myself and Brett Goldstein and and uh, Jeremy Swift, who plays Higgins, so that's Rebecca, Roy, and 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 Higgins going out for a drink, and we all are such pals that we would choose to spend the evenings together, even if we'd been doing press junkets all day. And we suddenly realised that it's basically like three cartoon characters walking down the street together, <laughs> and people would scan from what they'd go, "Oh my God, I love you!" In the show. wait, oh my God, I lo- oh my God, wait, you, oh my God, I love you. <laughs> Or if people hadn't noticed, I'd go, that's Roy Kent. And they go, oh, my God. <laughs> really well, he, needs to, he just needs to he just needs to stand back and say, oi, because then people will know it's him. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or another word, which we won't repeat. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's the, the I chose the I chose the you only did. one that, you I'm, chose very gently, that I'm permitted. Yes. Yeah. Well, Hannah Waddingham, Waddingham, Waddingham either Waddingham. way, <laughs> thank you so much for doing this. This is absolutely delightful. Thank you. Oh, well, Linda, let me tell you, it is always a pleasure speaking to someone who has absolutely immersed themselves in the subject matter, and I really appreciate it. Thank you. Hannah Waddingham. You can watch her in Ted Lasso on Apple TV+. She is nominated for an Emmy for her work on that show. Find out if she won September 12th. Our thanks to Linda Holmes for talking with Hannah. Linda is a writer and the co-host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, which you can listen to every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Linda also just wrote a brand new book. 
her second novel. It's called Flying Solo. It is delightful, moving and fun and funny and everything. Go buy Linda's book, Flying Solo. Highest recommendation. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. This week at my house, I somehow ended up with more garbage bags than would fit in my garbage can. But don't worry, my neighbor Ruben said that I could put some in his. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow at Maximum Fun is Tabitha Myers. We get booking help from Merritt Davis. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme music is by The Go Team. It's called Huddle Formation. Thanks to The Go Team for sharing it with us, along with their label, Memphis Industries. Bullseye is also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Find us there. Give us a follow. We'll share with you all of our interviews. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 